Hey, I'm Brett Podolsky, co-founder of The Farmer's Dog. We make fresh food for dogs. We started the company when we saw what a huge difference it made in my own dog, Jada, when she stopped eating ultra-processed kibble and started eating fresh, whole food. The Farmer's Dog food isn't fancy. It's just real food delivered to your door in pre-portioned packs. It's better for them and easier for you. Get 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. That's thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. Hey, folks, this is Kevin. And that's Quincy. Uh, on this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Monica Novak. Thank God this is not about me. <laughs> that and more. But before that, you know, the year 2020 shows up a lot in science fiction. A lot of people predicted that by now we'd be teleporting to work or living on Mars. A lot of those predictions were wrong. The truth is we'll always be getting the future wrong in some ways, which is why we need to get life insurance right. That's where policy genius can help. Policy Genius makes finding the right life insurance a breeze. In minutes, you can compare quotes from the top insurers to find your best price. You could save $1,500 or more a year by using Policy Genius to compare life insurance policies. And they don't just make life insurance easy. Policy Genius can also help you find the right home and auto insurance or disability insurance. So if your science fiction dreams for 2020 still haven't become fo- uh, science fact, trip over that line every week. Don't get discouraged. Get life insurance. It takes just a few minutes to find your best price and apply at policygenius.com. Policy Genius will always get the future wrong. Better get life insurance right. Also, I am so thrilled to announce that my brand new online coaching and mentoring services that you can find out more about at kevinallison.com are going great. I had my first couple of sessions last week. They were a total joy. There's all sorts of things that I might be able to meet with you about via Pensite.com. Pensite is a knowledge marketplace. It is an online platform that enables experts to connect with clients for paid live video consultations. So last week, for example, I met with a young man who is creating a documentary about his family's legacy, everyone's personal stories from his large extended family, and he wanted some tips on how to coach people, how to guide people, how to pull stories out of people. 
I also had a wonderful meeting with a young woman who wants to work on her performance skills in storytelling, wants to work with adding more emotional context to her stories in the text itself, but also using her voice in a more emotive way, using acting techniques to turn up the volume and the color in her performance. I have the meeting scheduled for next week with someone who is brand new to the kink community and wants some guidance about, you know, dipping their toes in, do's and don'ts, things to be aware of psychologically as they start to enter that realm and go through those sorts of experiences. As I said in the past, I have done coaching before with priests, lawyers, doctors, fine artists, teachers, tour guides, social workers, and a bazillion people in the corporate sphere. <laughs> so, if you want to meet with me online, you know, where we can see and speak to each other, for a half hour or an hour, there's all sorts of options that you can find by going to kevinallison.com, K-E-V-I-N-A-L-L-I-S-O-N.com, and there's a link there that will take you to my profile over on pensite.com. Let's set something up. Now here's the show. kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Fujia and Miyagi behind me now. This song was in Kevin Goes to Kink Camp. So whenever I hear it, it really takes me back to the earliest days of Risk. But you know what else takes me back to the early da earliest days of Risk is that I'm a little bit stoned right now and just had sex. <laughs> I don't feel like I've hosted the podcast in that position so much recently, but uh, I used to all the time back in the day. I am turning 50 this weekend, and <laughs> I do have to laugh that my, my sex life is perhaps more intense than in my 20s. <laughs> it's just ridiculous. <laughs> Um, I, I think I can admit much more intense. I have so many mixed feelings about sharing stories about whatever kink journey I might currently be on for several reasons. One of them is I'm always processing what's going on with some of my relationships and, and there's the intimacy of the relationship. You know, you, it's hard to be like, Hey, this thing we've been getting super, super intimate about. Do you mind if I tell a story about it while we're still moving through it, you know? Another story from back in the good old days of Risk was Beyond Kink Camp, which was about the first time I ever really devoted myself to a, a, 
a session of submission of, of like going deep into like that subspace of submission and to be honest that didn't really start happening again in a big way until about a year ago and i'm now at this place where i'm getting deeper into experiencing submission but it's very emotional it's it's incredibly i've become very vulnerable and so I think what might be a good idea, I, I explore this stuff with my therapist all the time, but what might be a good idea is to start crafting some of these stories for my own, just for my own listening, and maybe I'll be able to share them later as a way of processing, which so many people do on this show in, in other ways. See, I got stoned and just started unpacking on you motherfuckers again. This episode today is kind of special. We're featuring four stories and then another surprise. But also, if you're a member at patreon.com slash risk, technically we're putting out a fifth story this week. You know, we put a bonus story out every week on Patreon for our members there. This week it is Eli Olsberg. It sounds a little bit like this. I like go to sex parties. I'm a deviant. I fuck a lot. I know I don't look like it. Like, I just have to blame... Like, I look... I look like a gay lesbian. Does that make sense? Do you know what I mean? That and many more. Many, many, many. There's a new one each week. Bonus stories at patreon.com slash risk. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear from Dave Murphy, a story he shared the last time Risk was in Detroit. But before that, a story that was recorded pretty recently... Here in New York City, we do the show once a month at Caveat. The next one's February 27th. Monica Novak had never shared a story in a storytelling show on stage before, but was a student of one of our faculty members at the Story Studio. One of the things we love in stories, you know, when we're coaching people in our classes, are stories that dare to deal with mixed feelings. Stories about people having an experience where, oh my gosh, they feel like they should be feeling one way, but are also feeling another. So without further ado, here is Monica Novak now with a story we call Brian. Back in 2007, I used to live in Hell's Kitchen, and I used to work on, on, at this bar on 8th Avenue and 46th Street, and I used to be a cocktail waitress. And one Friday afternoon, when I came to work, as I walk in, I see my coworker, Brian, sitting in a corner with a big suitcase and just looking kind of strange. So as I approach him, I say, hey, Brian, how are you? How is your day? And that's when I noticed that Brian looks really disheveled. He has scratches all over his arms, and he has a big bruise on his right cheek, and he just really looks out of it. So he looks at me, and he says, I just had the worst day of my life. And I say, what happened? 
And he's like, you know what? I don't really want to talk about it. I'm still very upset. And this is just a little bit too much to get into right now. So eventually he ended up telling me what happened. And what happened was <laughs> he got into a fight uh, with his roommate. And he basically kicked him out of the apartment, stole some of his stuff, stole his money. And right now, he didn't have a place to go, he didn't know anyone in the city, and he didn't know what to do next. I feel sorry for Brian, even though I didn't know him that well, but I could relate to that situation of being all by myself in a big city and not having any friends, any family, because I just came probably about two years prior to that from Poland, and I had just two suitcases and $1,000 in my pocket, and if something like that happened to me, I would be lost and terrified. So I told Brian, look, if you want, there is a couch in my apartment. You're more than welcome to crash on it, and it's not going to be a problem. My roommates and I were used to having people sleeping there all the time, and the couch is currently available. So if you want, you can, you can crash on it, and, and hopefully we'll figure something out. So that's what we did. When we finished the shift, we went to my place, and I set him up on the couch, and then I just went to sleep. So when I woke up in the morning, Brian wasn't there. He just left a thank you note, and which says, thank you, I'll see you later. So that was it. So next day, Saturday, as I get to work, it's right away a super busy night. The place was constantly overcrowded, understaffed, and super loud. And I'm just running back and forth between the bar and the dance floor, not only serving the drinks, but also making the drinks. And it's just a busy, busy, busy night. So at some point, like, as I'm making another vodka cranberry, I look to my left and I see the owner of the place standing by the door and he's talking with two guys, both of them wearing suits and one of them holding a briefcase. And they definitely stand out amongst that crowd that we used to get there. Like, you know, Hell's Kitchen in 2007 was still pretty rough. So the guys were like, both of them were just totally out of place there. So I kind of like laughed at it a little bit, but I had my drinks ready and I was ready to serve them. So I ran back on the dance floor to serve them. So as I come back, the owner of the place taps me on the shoulder and he says, they want to talk to you. And he points at those two guys. I was like, come on, I, I have no time for this. It's like I'm the only waitress on the floor tonight. I don't have time for that. And he says, they're from FBI. What? And he said, they're from FBI. You need to talk to them. This is the first time during that night that I actually stop. And I'm not sure if I'll be able to move again because I suddenly feel like I've been paralyzed. And I have this huge wave of heat coming from the bottom of my stomach through my chest, going to my throat, and I like, feel my throat tightening up almost as much as the tightening of that right now, <laughs> telling this story on the stage. And I'm standing there, and he's looking at me, and I'm looking at him, and I know he's saying something, but I can't really hear it because the place suddenly gets quiet. Like all the noises get muffled, and, and I'm just standing there with my mind blank main thought that's going through my head is some mixture of shit what the fuck i can't believe this so i guess i have to backtrack a little bit here and tell you my why my reaction over there happened the way it did so i was an illegal immigrant in this country i came two years prior as i say um with a suitcase uh, two suitcases thousand dollars and yeah i fell in love with a comedian uh <laughs> And um, yeah, I decided to overstay my, my visa, and, and here I was two years later, now I'm currently being an uh, illegal immigrant, 
and yeah and then and this is what was happening and i just couldn't believe it i couldn't believe that it would happen to me not in this place in the middle of the dance floor i'm being busted and being kicked out of the country so yeah i'm like standing there and then i just feel like I've been taken out of there. I'm just watching this situation as it's happening, that it's really not happening to me. But then, yeah, I mean, we went down to the basement where the office was, and the FBI guys were there already. So they introduced themselves, and they definitely had that dynamic of the good, funny guy and the bad, more serious guy. (laughs) Uh, So we sat at the table, and the bad guy, let's call him bad guy, did most of the talking. And so he asked me, what's my name? I said, what's my name? What's your address? I told him my address. And then he asked me, what do you know about Brian? And I'm like, Brian, uh, Brian, the, the, the co-worker? He's like, yeah. So I said, well, he's the co-worker. Like, we work together. And as I'm answering that question, I was like, why are they asking me about Brian? Like, what does Brian has to do with that? And that's when it hits me that Brian actually was the one who reported me to the officials. And as I'm sitting there, I find myself getting so angry. Like angry with Brian for being such a jerk or dick, to make it clear. Uh, and, And just doing something like that after I've been nice to him, after I was trying to help him but mainly angry with myself for being like so stupid and naive and just telling everyone and their mother about my legal situation in this country. <laughs> so like all of my coworkers, my friends, my neighbors, everyone knew that I was looking for a guy to get married to get my green card. <laughs> and I thought, I thought that this is just like a good networking. <laughs> and... <laughs> And that the more people knew about my story, about my story, like I'm trying to get married, the more people would, you know, there'd be more opportunities. So here I was, all of it came back biting me in the ass. You know, I was actually thinking that maybe Brian could marry me. Like, you know, maybe he knows someone to marry me. And then here we are, he just reported me to the official. And I was just, I was just devastated. So I'm sitting there. And I, I'm like on the verge of starting to cry and they keep asking me questions. And at some point, like after a few questions, like how, what did you do on, on uh, Friday night? Like, wh- what do you know about Brian, blah, blah, So that's when I realized there's like a lot of questions about Brian. <laughs> and that's when I start thinking like, I don't think this is really about me. I think maybe this is about Brian. <laughs> So I look at the, you know, the, the good, approachable guy, and I say, I, and at that point, actually, I started crying because there were just all these emotions and feelings. And I say, can you tell me what this is all about? And he looks at me with this, like, smile on his face. He's like, don't cry, you'll be fine. And I'm like thinking, yeah, it's, it's easy for you to say. Uh, but anyway, like, what I find out next is that Brian is actually not Brian. His name is Clarence. And Clarence slash Brian is a registered sex offender in two states. And Brian just came from Florida where he raped a woman and he stole her car. So while in New York, Brian was uh, staying at this, you know, city hotel in Times Square. And on Thursday night, Brian brought in a girl that he met on Craigslist. And he ended up raping her, strangling her wrapping her body up in a plastic bag and stuffing it under the bed. And then in the morning, he checked out, he came to work on Friday afternoon, and that's when I met him, and that's when I took him home. (laughs) So I'm sitting there, 
and I'm like processing this whole information and I'm like oh my god I just feel this sense of relief like oh my god like thank god this is not about me <laughs> this is about something else it's, it's not me like oh my god I can go home I can sleep in my own bed I can wake up tomorrow and continue my American dream so yeah, uh, it took me probably another four weeks to really like process that information, to really like feel what actually happened. But that night, I was actually walking home and I felt like I was on the cloud nine. And I was actually humming a song and, and then just, you know, being super happy. So when I got home, my roommates were up actually, because we, all of us, we used to work night shifts. And all of us actually, we used to be illegal, same situation. I told them what happened. The first question was like, oh my God, were there any body parts in that suitcase that he had? So I was like, no, there was no body parts. It's, we're fine, we're good. And, but then they were just like, just as happy as I was. And we actually toasted to it, like, you know, cheers to not being busted by, you know, uh, officials. I mean, it's like, life is good. So yeah, uh, my coworkers, on the other hand, started fetishizing this whole thing about Brian. One of them actually printed out his picture from New York Post or Daily News or like one of those, and he framed it and he put it behind the bar, like, and then we were just telling everyone that story. <laughs> but then, like probably, as I say, four weeks, maybe five weeks after that, I started having flashbacks of what happened. I have started having flashbacks of my interactions with Brian, Clarence, and, um, you know, and I just remember, like, I remember that night we were sitting on the couch and how he was, like, taking off the scabs from those scratches. And I just remember that look on his face and now all of it was just, like, coming back to me. And then I was thinking about this poor woman who must have fought so hard. It was just um, really, like, again, didn't happen. Those feelings didn't happen until, like, four or five weeks after that. So years later, like in the retrospect, I was wondering, like, were we really like such a bad, heartless people to like just, you know, take so carelessly uh, someone dying, somebody being murdered by some psycho? But now I like to think that I'll blame it on working the night shift, living in Hell's Kitchen, drinking too much and doing too much cocaine. Thank you. <laughs> Around about 1997, I was in a bad place in life. My TV career, it was over. And I'd gone from thinking I was on my way to becoming a star to becoming a cater waiter. Now, there was a word that I was always using when I would talk to the other cater waiters. I used to say, God damn, this job is really demoralizing, don't you think? Because a lot of rich people, they just have this tendency to treat poor people like they're not people. But so do people in between. 
For example, my catering company was regularly hired by the Metropolitan Opera House. And at the Met, there was a man named Christopher, whose job it was to be the liaison between the Opera House and the caterers. A very metrosexual guy, as they used to say back then. He looked kind of like uh, Jude Law. And he was always speaking down to us caterers as if we were unfit for the society of that institution. You know, if there was a stain on a cater waiter's jacket, Christopher would say something like, Do you know where you are? Your job is to at least seem like you're worthy of walking on these same carpets that such important people walk on. <laughs> we hated him. Well, one day, there was going to be a brunch to celebrate Pavarotti's birthday, the famous tenor. So we're all on time, we're waiting in the kitchen, but there was no Christopher. But we didn't know what to do because the guy in charge wasn't there. Then after about a half hour of confusion, this older lady from Brooklyn on our catering team holds up a copy of the New York Post and says, Oh my God, it's Christopher! Well, it turns out Christopher hadn't come to work that morning because he was in jail. The paper said that several months prior, Christopher had kidnapped a 13-year-old girl that he imagined he was having a love affair with, like in the novel Lolita. Well, the prior morning, the police had stopped by Christopher's neighbor's house just to check on like a gas leak or some other very minor thing. But Christopher, in his paranoia, assumed they were coming for him. And with this giant arsenal of guns and ammo, he started shooting (laughs) out his window at the cops outside. Well, no one was hurt. They rescued the girl and they got Christopher. So we were all stunned, of course. But then we all started jumping up and down, hooting and hollering and celebrating. Because catering wasn't going to be so demoralizing that day. In fact, morale was never higher. Now that we were rid of Christopher... Thank you. The thumping noise just wouldn't quit, no matter how much I wished it away. I was in the fog of sleep and just hoping to get a little bit more rest, and then I realized what the thumping noise meant, and I was on my feet and running. The thumping noise uh, was my mother, who lived or had a bedroom up above where my wife and I slept, and she was 91 years old, dementia-impaired, and I did everything for her during the day, I had to carry her, wheel her, feed her, bathe her. But at night, even though we had a hospital bed with handrails up, she would somehow slither her way out and make it back or work her way to the bedroom or uh, bathroom. So I'm racing up the stairs to help her out. And I have to tell you about my mother. She was caregiver to the world. 
She was the oldest of nine children. She took care of her younger brothers and sisters, and they always seemed to have some need even late into life. She parented three of us. My two older brothers were 10 and 11 years older than me. My father died when I was nine, so she single-parented me. She took care of her mother. She took care of her grandmother. She didn't have a job that paid much, but somehow everybody had to call her at night, either customers or coworkers. So this was just somebody who was always doing for others. And as dementia set in, I just couldn't see putting her into a nursing home. So my wife and I decided we had to take care of her. So that's what we were doing. So I'm heading upstairs, and I should note one other thing about the caregiving. The greatest caregiving of all that she did was for my brother, Pat. Pat was 10 years older than me. He was a Vietnam vet, and he never really came back from that war. He had a lot of struggles in life. He ended up being single parent to three kids, and uh, she was with Pat until the end of his life. He died prematurely at the age of 48. So again, how can we let someone who's done this much for others go into a nursing home? So um, I'm racing upstairs to see where she's at, and I'm too late. She's taking herself back to her bedroom. And I flip on the light switch, and I can't believe what I'm seeing in the bathroom. There are feces, shit, everywhere. It's uh, all over the floor. She's walked in it. She tried to pick it up, and she's got it on the sink, on the mirror, on the cabinets. It's on the bath mats. And her steps are about four inches apart, and she's grinding it into the carpeting in her bedroom. So I find her in the bedroom, and she's just had a massive stroke a few weeks prior. She has a condition now called global aphasia, and that means she can no longer speak our language or understand our language. And she was nearly deaf, and she wasn't wearing her hearing aids at night, so I communicated with her by touch and tone and intention. And I said, Mom, we got to get you cleaned up. It was all over her pajamas. It was all over her bedding because she'd been trying to power her way into bed. And so I work with her. I guide her back to a portable commode that we had in the bedroom. And I had to get the clothes off of her. I bathed her in place. I uh, worked on the bedding. And I finally got her back to bed. And it's 4 a.m. by this point. And it's about her third time up for the night. So I went to work on the bathroom, and then I got into the bedroom working on the carpeting. I had a couple buckets of water, and uh, there just reached a point where I was exhausted, and I just sat down, and I thought, how the hell did we get here? And the worst of it is that this moment wasn't at all a peak experience with what had been going on. I refer to it as the unholy convergence. Over the past three years, there had just been this mess of things that had been going on. Uh, my wife and I knew that my mother was declining, and we were talking about whether to move her in with us or move in with her to keep her environment stable. And about the time we were having that first discussion, I developed a health issue myself. It's a very common condition. I had a kidney stone. Uh, it's painful, but it's treatable. Mine was completely botched, so badly botched that I was fighting for my life. I ended up with permanent heart, kidney, and bladder damage as a result of the mistakes. It took over a year to piece me back together with 12 different procedures, and I was really in a narcotic haze uh, fighting my way through that. And my mother had been really plunging during that time, and we decided we've got to move in with her. So we made the transfer over to her house, and shortly after we did that, our house burned down. 
not mom's house, but the house my wife and I had been living in for 25 years. So it was just hit after hit that was going on, and, and almost worse than the fire was dealing with the insurance company, the volume of paperwork, and then the push to rebuild as immediately as possible, threatening that we wouldn't get a full payout if we didn't get to work on it. It's hard enough, I don't know how many have built a home, this was a first for us, but to be dealing with all of these contractors and the insurance company while caregiving, working, it was a monumental mess. So I'm sitting there cleaning up shit, and I lay back against the dresser, and suddenly I'm gone. I, I don't know whether I was falling asleep, but I, I went to a real experience from childhood. Suddenly I'm back in my childhood home, not the home that mom's living in now, but my childhood home, and I'm 11 years old, and I can date it precisely because my brother, Pat, the brother who died so prematurely, he had just returned from Vietnam. And we're in the uh, living room. It's 11 or 11.30 in the morning on a Sunday, and mom is in the kitchen baking. My brother Pat was a huge guy, about six foot two. He spent most of his adult life at about 240. But he came back from Vietnam real thin. He was probably 150 or 160 pounds. And mom was a marvelous baker. And she was plying him with every kind of baked good she could. She wanted to fatten her boy back up. And it was working, but was doing a number on Pat's belly. So he was having a lot of gastrointestinal issues. And um, this, this guy was my hero. He was all-state in several sports. He quit a college scholarship to join the service, go to Vietnam, came back a decorated war hero. He nearly died himself. He was hit by a roadside bomb and had suffered malaria. So this guy walked on water to me. So it's such a privilege to me. It was a high point in my life when he returned from Vietnam. So we're sitting in the living room together, 11 years old, 21 years old, and whatever this guy did, including passing gas, was nothing but hilarious and wonderful to me. But this was no ordinary day on the flatulence front. Um, Pat did something I can only describe as epic. This was drop the mic farting. This was weapons grade. This was the Chernobyl of farts. And just as he delivered that, there was a knock at the door. And our front door was about 10 feet away from the living area. And Pat, being the great athlete he was, he jumped to his feet and he shot out of the room. And I wasn't going to take the heat for this. So I followed after him, and our living room was connected to a dining area. And then that led into a back entry, a pantry area, but a back way into the kitchen. So we raced into there just as mom was leaving from the front entry of the kitchen to go see who was at the front door. So Pat and I are peeking around the corner to see who it is, and mom opens the door innocently, and it's a woman from church, and she's paying a surprise visit. So mom, ever the gracious host, says, let's go into the living room. <laughs> and these two women had no idea what they were about to encounter. So they're chirping away, and Pat and I race upstairs. We're getting as far away from the crime scene as we can. And there, it's very, very Catholic. And so the uh, woman's saying something about the nice rosary collection my mother has, or I don't know what they're talking about. And pretty soon, the ch pleasant chirping sound stops. And we start to hear some, <coughs> some retching noises. <laughs> And this poor woman, she must have thought that we weren't connected to the municipal sewer system. It, it, it 
was like we were breeding cattle in that room. And so she starts making some excuses about needing to light a candle at church, and she works her way out of the room, and Mom's trying to get her to stay, and I'm thinking, let her go. If there's any hope for survival, just let her go. So she gets out the front door, and Mom closes the door behind her, and then she does the next logical thing. She opens the door because we need maximum ventilation. And uh, then she starts screaming, you two get down here this instant. And uh, then she's opening up windows, and the yelling is continuing. And Pat had this magnificent laugh. It it was disconcerting because he was such a big guy. And it would start out with these hee-hee-hees, but then it would quickly transfer to his belly. And he'd emit these hee-haws that sounded like a donkey being stung by bees. And he started laughing harder than any human I had ever seen laugh before. He was laughing so hard, I think he ruptured a laugh muscle because he started grabbing his belly. And he was trying to head down the stairs, and he's holding his belly, and he's sliding against the stairway, and Mama's just screaming at this point, and she's yelling, I did not raise you to behave this way. And I thought, no, you did not. Um, I, I remember no instruction on farting in front of church people. So... Um, Pat's working his way down, and and he is laughing so hard, and Mom is so furious, and I'm frightened. I'm behind Pat, and I'm watching this, and I'm seeing these two forces of nature, a a guy laughing hysterically and this woman beside herself in rage, and Pat is just about falling over, and suddenly Mom starts laughing. She can't control herself. And those two couldn't look at each other the rest of the day without laughing. We couldn't have a meal without laughing. They laughed every time they made eye contact for the next several weeks. And uh, they're still laughing somewhere in eternity. And suddenly I was back. I was back in Mom's room, sitting against the dresser uh, in the midst of shit. But I was smiling at this point. And so often during that time of the unholy convergence, I I just felt a drift. I felt a drift in time. I'd look at my mother, this woman who had been so strong to parent me as a single parent, to do for so many people, and now she was in this state of transition, this compromised state, and yet she was still my mother. And time would bend back on itself. And so often I use the past as a guide to how to deal with the present. And I was so grateful for that time travel to think of how Pat had humiliated my mother with this church woman, this gracious and giving and um, strong, loyal woman was so humiliated by this moment. All I could think is that surely I can weather this shitstorm of my own. Thank you.
This is Risk. This is a song called Alewife by Claro. And before that, we heard a story that Dave Murphy shared the last time Risk was in Detroit. But before that, you might have noticed we did something a little bit different. I told a super short story, a little mini story, a story that was about three minutes and 30 seconds long. And we want to make those kind of stories a new feature of the show. We want you to pitch us your two or three minute long stories. We think 3.30 is a good maximum. They should be high stakes situations just like normal risk stories are, but not big journeys. You know, like if you noticed in that story, something intense happened, but it wasn't like a life-changing thing for me that needed a lot of setup and a lot of unpacking after. It was just a quick little thing that happened one day, but that made a big impression on me. You know, one of those oh-shit moments. It's easy enough to record one of these on your own if you just use the voice memo app on your phone and send it to us at pitchesatrisk-show.com. You know, a time you have to laugh about when you think back on it, or a day you were really scared, or something that happened that you're still kind of bewildered, like, what the fuck was that? A time you were really embarrassed, or a time you got momentarily furious. Um, If you've ever thought to yourself, I would love to pitch this story to Risk, but... It doesn't seem like it's a 15-minute long story. It's just this batshit crazy thing that happened to me for 10 minutes one day. Give it a shot. Send it in to us, pitchesatrisk-show.com. Now, in a little bit, we're going to hear from Lemur Cohen. But before that, a story that Aaron Swigert shared when Risk was in Vermont recently. Aaron was a fan of the show, pitched us this story, and we had a lot of fun working with her on it. Here she is now with a story we call Fire on the Mountain. We moved a lot. When I was growing up, we weren't running from the mob. Everything was safe and fine. We just moved. But that was hard for me as a shy kid to just have this series of awkward starting overs. I never really felt like I belonged anywhere. I never really felt home. You know, I figured I was sort of destined to wander in this lifetime. In my late teens, I start working in the national parks and I get this feeling of connection, belonging, not with a place, but with nature. It's like wilderness is my church. Years later, I'm living in Portland, Oregon, and I get that I'm not home. I'm out of move feeling again. And I write a list out of everything I want in a place to live. And Vermont has it all. So I pack up my shit, throw the dog in the car, and we move across country. I land somewhere in the middle. We take a state forest road up to the Green Mountains, and I find this small meadow to camp in. And it's filled with wildflowers and berries. And I just know that Vermont is where I'm going to stay. Years later, I hiked the northern part of the Long Trail, and the Northeast Kingdom just floors me. Like, there is something extra magical about this area, and I just, you know, the mountains seem like more rugged and steep, and there's these large rock boulders and covered in lichen, and 
lady slippers and jack in the pulpits and <laughs> honestly i just feel like there's more fairies here per tree than anywhere else <laughs> so i moved to the northeast kingdom and i'm looking for a place to live you know like i'm i've found where i need to be and i want a home and I'm always showing these properties to my friend Skipper. He's this kind of lanky guy with red hair and blue eyes, and and we work together. So one day I'm showing him this property, and he says, no, I know where you need to live. Like, I know the property. And he pulls up the real estate ad on the office computer, and we're clicking through the pictures. And, oh, my God, was he right? Like, it is five miles up a dirt road. It's on 10 acres on top of a mountain. There's this brook. It's got a view that goes out to the White Mountains in New Hampshire. So this small hunting camp. It's like 23 by 25. It's just this open box with a loft. The inside is foil-faced insulation, so you know at least the aliens won't hear me. <laughs> and, and it's perfect, right? Until we get to the wood stove. And the wood stove is this tiny thing, and the stovepipe is red and black striped with rust and creosote already. And Skipper's like, if you get this place, I got a wood stove and a, and a chimney. You can payment plan all good. So I start looking for loans. I've got good credit, right? But they don't give you loans if you don't have running water or electricity or a kitchen. And, you know, the whole town kind of knew that I was looking for this place. And one day I went into the corner store and one of the local guys, Bobby, he's like, did you get your house? And I said, no. Banks don't give you loans for places that aren't normal houses. Not long after that, Bobby says, you know what? If you want this place, I will finance you. <laughs> I don't really know what to say. Who does that for a pretty much stranger, right? But yes, please, and thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so one month later, I am moving into my home. My home. And I don't really get much done. You know, that first morning, I wake up, and I look out this wall of windows, and I see the mountains, and they're starting to change color. You know, fall is coming. And I just sort of dance around in bliss that I've got roots now. It starts to get cold. And I'm using that sketchy-ass stove. <laughs> and uh, it starts to smell wrong. It starts to smell like, you know, telephone poles on a hot day. And the creosote starting to bubble out in between the joints of the stovepipe. And I message Skipper, hey, when you come in, I think I'm going to catch on fire. <laughs> and I get crickets. One morning I wake up to, and I open my eyes. And 10 feet from the pullout couch that I'm sleeping on is 15 feet of glowing orange chimney pipe. There is so much air and like fire going through it that has disconnected itself from the wood stove and the whole thing is just swaying. <laughs> and I just jump out of bed, just fuck, you know? <laughs> I've never had an emergency before. I don't know what to do in an emergency. And I look around and, and I see buckets of water because when you have to break the ice to get water, you fill as many buckets as you can, right? So I take one of those buckets and I dump it on the wood stove, but that does nothing because the wood stove is not connected to the chimney anymore and the fire is in the chimney. So, okay, I have a fire extinguisher and I pull the pin and I'm trying to get it to like aim into this swaying massive angry pipe, but there's not, it's not, nope, nope, it's not happening. And, okay, I call Skipper. Skipper's the fire chief. He will know what to do, right? There's got to be something you do when your chimney's on fire. I just don't know what it is. But it's 5.30 in the morning, Skipper does does not answer his phone. <laughs> I know I have to call 911, but 
I don't want to call 911 because I'm sure there's something simple that I can do in this situation. But um, I don't know what that is. <laughs> so I call 911 and the dispatcher's like, what's your emergency? I say, my chimney's on fire. She says, get yourself and everyone else out of the house. And I say, okay, yeah, but what do I do about the fire? She says, you need to get yourself and everyone else out of the house. Yeah, but what about the fire? Ma'am, you need to get yourself and everyone else out of the house. The fire department's on their way. It's negative five outside. So I am throwing on whatever layers I can find. And I go out and I stand in the dark, in the cold, looking like the Michelin man, if the Michelin man was a bag lady. And I am watching the flames just come out of the top of the chimney. And I am hoping with all hopes that it does not spread. If it spreads, I am losing my house and everything I own. At this point, I've been snowshoeing up the hill to my house and riding a sled down. <laughs> There's no way a fire truck, a water truck, nothing is getting anywhere near my place to put this fire out if it spreads. My phone rings. It's Skipper. It says, I looked at my phone to see what time it was when I got the fire call, and I knew exactly where I was going when I saw your missed call. <laughs> Great. <laughs> Can you just please come rescue me now? I've got a lot of time waiting for the fire truck to make it up the mountain and I'm watching those flames turn into sparks and I'm hearing the roar turn into a whisper and then finally it's quiet and dark in that way that it's only quiet and dark winter. I text my boss Bill and I say, you know, I, I don't think I'm going to make it today. Um, my house got on fire. <laughs> I'm fine. I think my house is fine, but I don't have heat. I don't know what I'm going to do. And, and then I see the fire truck the lights of the fire truck come at the bottom of the hill. And those firemen are post-holing it up through the snow to my house, and I hear Skipper, I'm coming, honey. Oh, I gotta work out. <laughs> By the time they make it to my house, the fire is out. We're okay, right? But they need to check and make sure that nothing's smoldering. And, and I'm feeling like shit, because I've called the fire department for an emergency that's not an emergency anymore, right? You know, I'm sorry you guys had to get up so early. Sorry about all the snow in the driveway. Anybody want some coffee? You know, and one of the firemen just says, well, you just wanted company this morning, didn't you? I say, Skipper, can I at least get the chimney parts from you? And the other firefighter, he just starts laughing. He says, oh, that's going to be tricky. He's still using them. <laughs> Great. They head down the hill, and I've got all the doors and windows open to try and get rid of the nasty tar creosote smell that's permeated everything I own. And I sit down on my couch, and I just break into a blubbery mess of panic. You know, I, it, winter has just started. I don't have heat. I can't live here without heat, you know? And I've got an old sick dog, and I don't even know if she can make it from my house to my truck for us to stay somewhere else. And where are we going to stay? I can't pay rent and my mortgage, you know? And, and I'm just doing these circles, and it's just not going anywhere good. And I go to work, because I don't know what else to do with myself. And I get to work. Again, it's a job I've only had a few months. I get to work, and my boss, Bill, he's like, you ready? So what, what are you talking about? And I look over, and, and there's my coworker, Ted. And I was like, Ted, what are you doing here? It's your day off. And he says, I'm here to remedy the situation. 
we all come right back up to my house and they're taking measurements and making a shopping list for me of what I need to buy and what they have in their garages or basements. And Bill says, what about the wood stove? And I say, you know, my vet just told me she has one for sale. So we go to my vets and I tell her what happened. And she says, if you want this, it's yours. Just take it. And I say, are you sure? You know, it's for sale. Now it's free. She says, I just want you and your dog to be warm. And she gives me a hug, and I am about to break down again, but I can't because Bill's running right in. Okay, so when can I come pick it up? And can I make trailer fade over here? Whatever it is that he's saying, because I'm just sort of in shock at this point. <laughs> I managed to get my dog down the hill and we stay at a friend's house and it is so nice to be warm. <laughs> it's seven in the morning, Bill and Ted are down at the bottom of the hill with a tractor loaded on a trailer, the wood stove, generators, tools, everything that they're going to need to make shit happen. Only there is a lot of snow in my driveway. <laughs> so, so the tractor goes nowhere. They're slipping, sliding and swearing pretty much is what we're getting, but they do not let that stop them. They end up dragging that heavy-ass wood stove up the hill on that little kid sled that I used to sled down in the morning. (laughs) By the time we make it up to my house, it is just this flurry of motion. They are all about getting it done. I can't really do anything but just hand them the occasional, you know, screw or drill or scalpel, and they just, you know, and I don't... I don't know if it's because this is just how they roll or if it's because Ted's girlfriend's down in the bottom of the hill in the truck with the heat on, but in no time, I have a wood stove and a chimney. (laughs) They head down the hill, and I have a fire. I put the wood right to it. I make it bikini weather in there. I am just (laughs) stripping off layers every few minutes, you know? And I sit down on the couch in my undies and my t-shirt and I cry. Only this time, they're tears of joy and gratitude. You know, I found where I belong. I have a home. I'm warm. I'm safe. And it's really all because of the kindness of the people in my community. And I just thank the universe for the kindness of others. I want this house. I need this house. We need this house. What the hell was that? All I did was turn on the water. That's all? Look, this is an old house. It's gonna need some work. You've gotta expect that. And it's gonna be great. It's gonna be fun fixing it up. You'll see. Here lies Walter Fielding. He bought a house. Killed him. I'm sitting in a movie theater. My leg is shaking. I'm biting the tip of the skin off my the skin of the tip of my fingers. I'm so nervous. My husband tries to calm me down. He puts his hand on my knee, but I shove it away and I whisper, yell at him, "I am not having fun." 
We were watching a movie called In Darkness. It's a Polish movie about the Jewish population in the city of Lvov during the Nazi occupation in World War II. I can still see some of the images from the movie, like they're tattooed to my brain, the Nazi soldier ripping a Jewish man's beard off his face, or the naked ladies, women running in the forest until the Nazis shoot them. And it took me a while to figure out why this movie was more difficult for me to watch than other Holocaust movies, besides the fact that it was so realistic. And once I figured it out, I called my dad and I said, it was like 24 hours later, and I called my dad and said, hey dad, will you please take me to Lvov? I want to see the places where you were born and raised. I want to learn more about my family's history. My father had Asperger's syndrome. He was never really diagnosed because he was born before autism or Asperger were defined, but at a certain point, we all acknowledged the fact that he's not just weird. Even he himself knew it. He had these strange facial expressions. He would never talk about his feelings. He would never tell me he loved me. When I was 20, I asked him, how come you never tell me that you love me? And he looked at me and said, why state the obvious? And um, he did not like postponing things. He had problems with delaying gratification. He was weird. He, he had Asperger. And he was also very, very smart. He was a world-known thoracic surgeon. And I loved him most because of, of two reasons. The one was he always respected me. And he always supported me. No matter what stupid decision I made, he always was supportive. So when I asked him if he will take me to Lvov, he had this robotic voice when he got excited. He said, you want to go? I could literally hear over the phone how his eyes grew big and his neck strained. When? And it was April or May, and I said, oh, I can't go during the summer, and I don't know, you know the, the end of October. And I could hear him disappointed that it was not tomorrow. But he said, oh, okay. And I said, we'll talk about this tomorrow. 9 a.m. the following morning, I get a phone call at work, and I see that it's my dad's number. And I pick up and I said, what's up, dad? And I was certain he was calling to talk to me about planning the trip. And he said, I booked us a flight. I purchased non-refundable tickets. We are leaving on October 26th. And that was it. October 26th comes. Uh, we land in Lvov. We put our suitcases in the hotel, which I booked us on the main boulevard. And we decide to take a walk around the city. The main boulevard is beautiful. It's wide and has trees and restaurants and coffee shop and all the tourists walking around with their shopping bags. And we walk for no longer than two minutes when my father says, stop, turn left here. And we're standing in front of a building and my father explains that this building used to be a Nazi factory. The Jews were brought in from the ghetto in the morning to do forced labor and they were brought back to the ghetto in the evening. Both him and his father worked at that factory. And he said one day his father told him Tonight, you're not coming back to the ghetto with me. Uh, he was to stay hiding inside the factory and wait until he heard three knocks on the window. And when he heard these knocks, he should leave through the window. He said, I have found you a hiding place in Warsaw. It will be safer for you there. 
And my father says, this was the last time I have seen my father. And he had no expression on his face. He was like feeling, I couldn't tell what he was feeling. It looked like he was feeling nothing. And I had four kids at home. And I'm standing there and I'm trying to imagine what would it feel like if I would be with one of my children and I would tell them goodbye for the last time. Like, I'm not, never going to see you again. Wait for someone to knock. I'm really hoping I'm saving your life. Goodbye. What would, I, what would you say? And I couldn't imagine, so I started asking questions. I asked my father, did you cry? And he looked at me and said, what good would that have done? I said, okay, did your father cry? And he said, I don't remember. And I said, did he tell you that he loved you? And my father got upset. He says, I do not remember. What difference does it make? So I let it go, and we continued the walk. We leave the nice part of the city, and we go to the real city where people actually live. It's all gray and neglected and dirty and disgusting. And we enter this gate. It's an apartment building. And it's built in a rectangular way, so there's an internal yard. Every apartment has a window to this yard, and there is only one gate. It stinks of urine and cats. The walls are covered in mold. The, the concrete floor is just dirty and muddy. And my father explains this internal yard, the Nazis used it to gather the Jews inside since there was no way to escape. There, is, there are no other entrances or gates or, or exits. The Jews were gathered inside, and when they had several hundreds of Jews, it, it was not that big, I have to admit. I didn't understand how they crammed hundreds. But he said when they had several hundreds, they would bring the trucks and take the Jews to the death camps. And he told me that one day they caught him and his brother and his mother, and they were forced to go into that yard. And he was standing at a certain point. He said, at this exact point, my mother was standing, and he told us she bent down and she whispered to their ears, next time they bring more Jews inside, you two, run. Just sneak between their legs, go find your father. Being nine and 12 years old, they looked at her and said, nah, we don't want to go without you. And she said, listen, you have to go. And they said, no, we're not leaving without you. And she said, okay, you know what, I'll come after you, just go first. And then, more Jews were pushed inside, and she just pushed them away. And my father said, we managed to sneak between their legs, and we were out. We did not run, not to draw attention, but we were out, and we walked outside. And then he says, of course, she lied to me. She, she never came after us. And again, his face had no expression. This time, I cannot even imagine doing this to one of my children my mind, I can't wrap my mind around this. And I'm looking at my father and I do not see the 83-year-old man telling me this story. What I see is the 12-year-old boy who is still mad at his mother for lying to him. And I said, hey, what if she didn't lie? What if she tried to escape but got caught? And for a glimpse of a second I saw something changed in his eyes, like he really wanted to believe my version of the story, but then it, it left just as it came, and he looked at me and said, what is this nonsense you're talking about? Of course she lied. And at that moment, 
I had a huge realization. I realized that this man has not heard an I love you in over 70 years. And I decided I'm going to start telling him I love you. We came back to Israel. First trial was a major disaster. I got, Dad, I wish you a great day. Couldn't, couldn't get it out of the system. But on the third try, we were talking on the phone, and I ended the call with, I love you. And my dad's response was, <laughs> yes. <laughs> he was too embarrassed or shy or flustered. He couldn't handle, and I love you after so long. And I decided I'm going to end every conversation with him with, I love you. And for three years, I ended every conversation with, I love you. And for three years, I got, <laughs> yes. <laughs> After three years, my father was dying. Uh, we all knew he was dying. And as per his request, he was at home. We did not uh, take him to a hospital. He was very weak. He couldn't get out of bed. So we just lay him there naked. We put some towels beneath him and covered him up with a blanket and just waited. And several days went by. And I sat next to my father on his bed, and I put my elbows next to his head, and I leaned forward like I was hovering above him. And I said, listen, I know this will be very difficult for us once you die, but I will take care of everything, okay? I want you to know that I'm setting you free. You can die peacefully. I love you. And my dad was already too weak to speak, but he managed to whisper back, me too. Thank you. That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is Fantagram behind me now. And we just heard from Lemur Cohen, who shared that story at the Risk Live show in Los Angeles a while back, actually. Before that, a little interstitial by our episode editor, Jeff Barr. Clips from the old 80s comedy, The Money Pit. We've got a lot of Risk Live shows coming up that you should either come out to see or pitch us stories for. You can always find information about where Risk is appearing live next at risk-show.com slash tour. 
Don't forget all that bonus content you can find at patreon.com slash risk, and it really helps us for our fans to help us out there. Join the conversation. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram at Risk Show. On Instagram and Twitter, I'm at the Kevin Allison. We have lots of educational opportunities. The storytelling training that we do, either online, in person, in group workshops, videos, or corporate workshops at thestorystudio.org. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Ha 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 ha!